Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. Let's get started. Woohoo! It's the last last section of To Kill a Mockingbird. I wanted to I wanted to share this comment we got from my friend. Her name is Darla. I hope she will listen to this because she is so supportive and so kind. And, and she uh, just sent me this message and she said that she had just finished To Kill a Mockingbird. She said, so good. I didn't realize I'd only ever seen the movie. She said, people tell me I look like Scout from the movie when I was a child. So I thought that was really cool. And I love it because I love the movie. I love them. And I think it is so faithful to the book. I cannot read the book without thinking of Gregory Peck. I can't read the book without thinking of that darling little scout. So I love that Darla looked like scout as a little girl. <laughs> I just love it. So it's awesome. I have not ever seen it. And that needs to be on your to be watched list tomorrow. I just said earlier before we started recording that I'm nervous that this episode is going to go forever because as I was reading, I'm like, there's so much happening in this at last part. There is, there is. For and sure. it like all this kind of comes together. We learn about Boo Radley and why we learned all about him. And it's just fun. Yeah. Fun oh my sad. gosh. And it just really, yeah, for sure. It just really struck me as I was reading and studying this last section, just what an incredible writer Harper Lee is. There's something that I wanted to point out. It's even down to the accents that she gives everybody, the way that they speak. And and everybody has their own style of speaking, even down to Scout, where she will repeat a word that she's already said. Now, are you going to go and see Jem now? which is such like a little kid thing to do. And at first I was like, I wonder if she meant to do that. And then over time you're like, she totally is meaning to do that. So then are you going to do that then? <laughs> you know, it's like all these little things that Scout says and the way that even, I feel like that is such a tiny detail, but it's just kind of brilliant too. I Presley, love it. You know, Presley's almost seven and she, oh, now I'm starting to forget how she says things. I should have written it down. Isn't that kind of, oh my gosh. And isn't that the worst? And it kind of stabs your heart a little bit because you're like, I will never forget this because it's so cute. And then you totally forget it. It's awful. One cute thing she says is like, if she's saying the phrase, even though, like I like broccoli, even though it's a vegetable, she'll leave out the word though. And so she'll say, I like broccoli, even it's a vegetable. Oh, cute. So cute. But I need to like write those things down. I know. Oh, yeah. Let's jump in. I'm excited. Now, this time I did my notes a little bit different. So I hope that it's as smooth as it normally is for me because I'm scared. <laughs> Chapter 22. The trial has ended. Jim is super upset. I think they've, they're they just coming home from it, right? Yes, because it, it just ended. He's upset. And Atticus kind of looks like nothing has even happened. He's just walking home like it's an ordinary day. When they get there, Alexandra is at home and one interesting thing that she says is, I'm sorry, brother, which they the kids had never heard her call him brother. And they just think that's that's kind of sweet. And but Alexandra, when they get home, can tell that there's something wrong with Jim. She's like, This is why I told you they shouldn't go. They shouldn't be there. Atticus is just 
exhausted and he's just like well and i do like his response to her he says this is their home sister we've made it this way for them they might as well learn to cope with it interesting such a like wise statement you know yeah he's just exhausted i can't even imagine how he would feel after a trial like that and he's like i'm just going to bed (laughs) and he's like if is this where he says if i don't get up in the morning leave me there (laughs) <laughs> yeah, don't 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 bother me. <laughs> yeah. But then in the morning he gets up really early like normal. So it didn't Yeah. It might be didn't tired actually go- change anything. Right. So I just love what Jem says and to his his dad as he's going to bed and then his uh, Atticus says, "What son?" He says, "How could they do it? How could they?" And then Atticus responds, "I don't know, but they did it. They've done it before and they did it tonight and they'll do it again." And when they do it, seems that only children weep. Good night. He's just so like, matter of fact, I don't mm-hmm. understand. I'm exhausted. I'm going to bed. But poor Jem. He's, I mean, I bet the kids are just so confused. What has just happened? Oh, yeah. So in the, like I said, in the morning, it's early. He's the first one up anyways, even though he'd said he wasn't going to be. I love that Tom Robinson's friends had sent over all this food. When Calpurnia got there, she gets to the back steps and she's like, there's food everywhere. She says, this was all around the back steps when I got here this morning. They they appreciate what you did, Mr. Finch. They they aren't overstepping themselves, are they? And I, I just love that Atticus's eyes filled with tears. And he says, tell them I'm grateful. Tell them. Tell them they must never do this again. Time's too hard. So he's worried about them and, you know, them not having enough, but they're just so appreciative of him for yeah, they absolutely recognize that he gave his all. He is an incredible lawyer. He's an incredibly intelligent man. And he had he'd done a really good job. If he was a white man, he would if if Tom Robinson was a white man, absolutely Atticus would have won the case. Absolutely. This is yeah. them recognizing that he had done an incredible job. It's just and interesting it was- that he he knew all along he couldn't win. I think he hoped, yeah, yeah, but yeah. He knew. So Dill arrives. She says, Dill told us of Miss Rachel's reaction to last night, which was, if a man like Atticus Finch wants to butt his head against a stone wall, it's his head. And as we get through this section, I think we find out that more of the town agrees with Atticus mm-hmm. than we think. But, you know, and Miss Rachel's not one of them. So the kids go outside and Miss Stephanie and Miss Maudie are outside talking. Miss Maudie calls Jem over. That's when Miss Stephanie starts drilling him. And she says some awful things. She wanted to know who'd given them permission to go to the court. And she says she didn't see him, but it was all over town this morning that they had been in the balcony. Did Atticus put us up there as a sort of, and she doesn't finish her sentence, wasn't it right close up up with all those? did, Did Scout understand all the, didn't it make us mad to see our daddy beat? So she's just like, drilling them. Miss Maudie is also somebody that I'm starting. I I mean, you, as the book goes on, you just like her more and more mm-hmm. and understand yeah. what a great person she is. I think I, I yeah. guess I was, I wasn't clear on that in the beginning, the right reaction. <laughs> she just Yeah. Didn't... Fair enough. I mean, you didn't know how strong of a character she was going to be, but yeah. as it goes along, you realize she's, she's pretty awesome and incredible. Miss Maudie had make, made them cakes. And I was editing our first episode and you had said that she made the best cakes 
in that episode. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, she made really and good cakes. She made them cakes. Yes. And she'd even made one enough for Dill. She knew he was going to be there. So they were worried that she hadn't, but she had. They go over to, to eat the cakes and they can tell that she has something to say to them. And they can just see it in her. And she says, I simply want to tell you that there are some men in this world who were born to do our unpleasant jobs for us. Your father's one of them. Just so amazing. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Like you said, this whole section, it's like, I'm like, as I was studying, I'm like, okay, I have to read that. Okay, I have to read that. <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so good. And then she says to Jim, you're not old enough to appreciate what I said. And Jim, I like what he says back to her. It's like being a caterpillar in a cocoon. That's what it is. Like something asleep wrapped up in a warm place. I always thought Maycomb folks were the best folks in the world. At least that's what they seemed like. And she says, we're the safest folks in the world. We're so rarely called on to be Christians. But when we are, we've got men like Atticus to go for us. And then he says back to her, wish the rest of the county thought that. And she says, you'd be surprised how many of us do. And then... She kind of starts naming some of them, like the judge, the sheriff. Something interesting she says is, did you ever think that the judge appointed Atticus for a reason? It should have gone to this other attorney who was newer and less experienced. But, you know, and throughout the trial, you can tell that the judge agrees with Atticus. So she'd been thinking the night before as she waited that Atticus wasn't going to win, but that he was the best one for this job. And she says... I thought to myself, well, we're making a step. It's just a baby step, but it's a step. <laughs> I like the section where Dill talks about wanting to be a clown so that he can laugh at other people. And the kids are kind of like, um, no, people laugh at you. <laughs> You're <laughs> they're laughing at you as the clown. That that was kind of a funny little exchange. But they leave Miss Maudie's house and they see that the others, other people are still talking. Miss Rachel's coming up to them. And Alexander tries to get them inside before they hear something, but it's too late. Bob Yule had stopped Atticus on the post office corner and he'd spit in his face and told him that he was going to get him. Like, if it takes the rest of my life, I'm I'm getting you. I think this chapter is the town is all stirred up. They're just. Yeah. And they knew that they would be. And like you said, it had gotten all over town that Jim and scout had been at the trial that was a big deal especially the fact that they had sat on the balcony yeah everybody just decides that they need to have an opinion on it it's like there were so many people who were all for atticus i'm afraid that a lot of it does come down to that idea of a silent majority afraid to say something even though they are actually and i don't know the exact numbers i don't know if in this town they would be considered the majority, but just so many times it's the outspoken minority who gets their way. We see that constantly and it's so frustrating. Something that I wonder is just if good people just assume that there's enough good people out there that are going to do something so they don't need to. So then nobody ends up doing anything. And so that's why they end up being the silent majority and therefore not represented very well majority. The outspoken minority figures that nobody is on their side, and so they're super loud and annoying, and bad things happen. Or, yeah, I don't know. The silent people think that there's more of the people that are loud because they're loud, and everybody well, is yeah. quiet. I see that a lot. Yeah, I think there are probably a lot more level-headed people than we think. Just everybody is quiet. So we need a lot more people that are level-headed and 
willing to speak up. Yeah, totally. So yeah. it was interesting. So Tate went up to this competition. It's called the We the People competition. And so basically they learn all about our government and the way it's organized and the constitution. And they go to this competition and they're like asked questions and they have to like defend their answer and, and things. So it's maybe a little bit like debate, but it's not debate. I was really glad that he decided to participate in it. I was a little bit surprised. He's somebody, he loves history. He's so good at history. He, We've certainly learned a lot about our government and constitution, but he was like, mom, I didn't know any of that stuff until I read this. And I was like, okay, well then you weren't listening, but <laughs> he's like, mom, most of the kids there were like, they were banned kids, which is not a bad thing to be a banned kid. But Tate is, he's also an athlete. You also, I mean, he also told me, he's like, you don't find a whole lot of the athletes like trying to do academic and smart things. You know, they're just like, you know, they totally like fit into that jock stereotype. And you have the band kids who fit into the band stereotype. And there's just not a whole lot of crossover. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm fine doing this as well. And I was like, yeah, like that's a really good thing to have a foot in many different areas because the, those are the people who are the most level-headed because they have an understanding of all these different areas and all these different people and their sort of quirks and their personalities. And those are the people that can relate to everybody. Yeah. And those are the kinds of leaders that we want because, and he even said, he's like, I think this is how we get leaders that are completely, they just have no clue what's actually going on. They're so out of touch. And I was like, well, yeah, because they're just on this one path and they don't, they don't actually have any knowledge of anything outside of their own sphere. And so to get somebody who like does exactly what Atticus is always trying to teach his kids, stand in somebody else's shoes, have experiences with people outside of your immediate sphere so that you really understand them and get to know them. And that's the kind of representation that we want. And that's the kind of leadership that we want and not people that are just completely out of touch. That kind of reminded me of Mean Girls, which Tangent. I've never seen the movie, but I'm going to. But Audrey had me listen to the soundtrack, the musical. Oh, uh -huh. and it's like she's really good at math, but she moves to high school, but she wants to be like part of the in group, but she can't. They're like, you can't be in math. They call it mathletes. <laughs> yeah. It just made me laugh. Yeah. It was very entertaining. We're going to uh, go see it in March. And so she was having me listen to the. Oh, okay. Nice. Chapter 23. It was funny because Mr. Yule stops Atticus. He spits in his face, which is so disgusting. And it's so demeaning and degrading. And not only does he do that, but then he basically threatens his life. Right. And all Atticus has to say about it is. I wish Bob Ewell wouldn't chew tobacco. That just makes it so much worse. The fact tobacco juice and breath and oh, in your face. Gross. In your face. But that was his entire response. And something else that Mr. Ewell said to him was too proud to fight. And he called him some awful names. And and Atticus just said, nope, too old. And Jem and Scout are very concerned because they feel like this thing that Bob Ewell said was like an actual threat on his life. They're like, um, you are a dead shot. Like, we should get a gun. And Atticus was like, no, I'm not getting a gun. 
they're like, listen, we're just really scared for you. And they were kind of scared for themselves a little bit. And Atticus, is, I love what he says. Like you said, you kind of want to like quote everything. I've got a lot of quotes from like directly from this chapter. He says, he meant it when he said it. Like when he said it to me, he did mean that he was going to try to go after me. But Jem, see if you can stand in Bob Ewell's shoes a minute. Okay, I learned so much from Atticus Finch. And I'm like, okay, we all have to learn to just like take a step back and not let things ruffle our feathers. This is... Amazing. He even wants to stand in the shoes of the guy who spat in his face and threatened his life. Can we do that? Maybe we can. He says, stand in Bob Ewell's shoes a minute. I destroyed his last shred of credibility at that trial. If he had any to begin with, the man had to have some kind of comeback. His kind always does. So if spitting in my face and threatening me saved Mayella Ewell one extra beating, that's something I'll gladly take. He had to take it out on somebody and I'd rather it be me than that house full of children out there. So he really felt like that was probably the last of Bob Ewell's shenanigans. And he was like, you know, he takes it on me and then it's just done. And then he's not going to take it out on his kids. He cannot fathom what is going to happen down the road a little ways, but still his approach is, is good. Obviously they're very worried about Tom Robinson and they're like, what's going to happen to him? He said, look, there's going to be an appeal. It's going to be a while and he will have another trial and it would be in a different place. So like a different jury and maybe people who are not so extremely prejudiced. And he's, he feels like they actually do have a good chance. And they say, well, but he, if he does lose that, then he could go to the electric chair, which is awful. And Jem is so upset by it that he's like, well, I don't think that rape should be a, a capital offense. I don't think he's really thinking about and Atticus is like, um, I don't have a quarrel with that statue. Like, yes, I do think rape should be a capital offense. But he did have deep misgivings when the state asked for and the jury gave a death penalty on purely circumstantial evidence. And he's like, if there is even a shadow of a doubt, the person should not be sentenced to death. There needs to be at least two eyewitnesses. They're like, yes, I was there. I did see it. And credible eyewitnesses, you know? And so that's his thing. It was like, yeah, I still think that rape should be a capital offense. But we need to make sure it happened. (laughs) We have to know that it actually happened at the hands of the person who's being accused of it. Yes. He says there's always the possibility, no matter how improbable that he's innocent. And and then Jem's next argument, he's like, well, then we should just get get rid of juries. Atticus says, well, I don't know about that. There might be a better way. Change the law. Change it so that only judges have the power of fixing the penalty in capital cases, which I think is really interesting. And then he talks about men and And this is something we talked about, I think, in the last episode about sort of the amphibian brain and you lose your ability to reason, especially like that mob mentality. And he's like, there's something in our world that makes men lose their heads. The men that had come to the court, sorry, not the court, to the jail to hurt Tom Robinson, they had lost their heads. They were not thinking reasonably. And really, the men on the jury were not reasonable. They couldn't be fair if they tried. In our courts, when it's a white man's word against a black man's, the white man always wins. And he also talks about how disgusting it is if a white man cheats a black man. Because it's like we talked about before, it's it's so much worse. He says, 
you'll see white men cheat black men every day of your life. But let me tell you something and don't you forget it. Whenever a white man does that to a black man, no matter who he is, how rich he is, or how fine a family he comes from, that white man is trash. There's nothing more sickening to me than a low-grade white man who will take advantage of a black man's ignorance. Don't fool yourselves. It's all adding up. And one of these days, we're going to pay the bill for it. I hope it's not in your children's time. I think that that was quite a prophetic statement. So the next thing that Jem observes is that everybody on the jury had come from the woods, which he also feels like was not fair because the people from the woods were not very educated. None of them were on the side of the black people where so many people from town really were. And they were also like, well, and they do talk about how like women can't serve on the jury at that point in time, which that's bad. I think it just comes down to like a conflict of interest. These people out in the woods didn't really know anybody in town. And so anybody from town that was on the jury, there would be so many conflicts of interest. And so they couldn't necessarily be trusted to make good decisions. I thought this was really interesting. He said, a jury's vote is supposed to be secret, right? And so that's one of the reasons that people from town couldn't be on it because if one of them voted a certain way, it might make somebody else mad and then there would be all these issues. And Jim's like, well, I thought their vote is supposed to be secret. Atticus says, well, it's supposed to be secret. Serving on a jury forces a man to make up his mind and declare himself about something. Men don't like to do that. Sometimes it's unpleasant. And then he notes, he's like, look, there actually were some good things that came from this. The fact that the jury took hours to deliberate. That's a really good thing. Because especially where it was a black man on trial, most people would have thought, no matter how the, the court case went, that they would have just, they already decided, they go back in their room, they deliberate for like half a second, and they already know what the verdict is. He's like, the fact that we made them deliberate for hours and hours, that's a good sign. You know, that's probably a good step. And they talked about how at least one of the men was a Cunningham and he may have been at the jail the night before. And maybe it was him who like caused everybody to deliberate because he's like the Cunninghams. They are very loyal. Once you have their respect, they respect you forever. I like how Jem's like, you put a man on the jury that was like at the jailhouse. Like he's like, what were you thinking? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. That's right. And Atticus was like, look, they left that night with new respect for the Finches. Yep. And so I knew that it would be just fine to have him on the jury. Then Atticus like gets back to his reading his newspaper and stuff. And they have this conversation with Aunt Alexandra about how Scout wants to invite Walter over for lunch. And Aunt Alexandra's like, no, you were never inviting him over because he's not like us. Like basically we're better than they are. And so they get into this sort of deliberation about what defines a good person and good folks and not as good folks and it's like people like the finches are better because they have a background and gem and scout are kind of thinking about it and they're like well but everybody has a background and everybody's family is as old as anybody else's family so why does that make sense and finally aunt alexandra is like he is trash that's why you can't play with him you're enough of a problem to your father as it is Jem leads Scout out of the room because she's burst into tears. She just can't believe that Aunt Alexandra called Walter trash. She's like, the Yules are trash. Walter 
is not. And Jim observes, he's like, there's four kinds of folks in the world. There's the ordinary kind like us and the neighbors. There's the kind like the Cunninghams out in the woods. The kind like the Yules down at the dump and the black people. That was his way of navigating different kinds of people in the world. I, I don't know. Interesting. It's the culture he's brought up in. But later on, Scout is like, I think there's just one kind of folks. Just folks. Just people. Our people. And Jem is like, well, that's what I used to think. But if everybody's the same, why do we all treat each other so badly? And they can kind of understand why Boo Radley has tucked himself away. Because he doesn't want to deal with people. Because people are crazy. Fair enough. So I have a thought about this, though. These people are progressive, right? In my opinion, they have a better view of of people than most. Than most. But they still have. It kind of bothers me that Atticus says it's the worst thing in the world to do some like to cheat a black man, because they still think of the black people. Yes, they think of them as humans, but they're still thinking of them as lower. Yeah. Except Scout, who's like, we're all just people. We're all just people. We're all just folks. And is it because yeah. she's young enough that she hasn't been like influenced by them, you know, or, or influenced by the the community and the thoughts, you know, where Jem has, he's older and he kind of has been, but she's still in that like, no, we're all just people. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Like, no. And that's something that I've observed throughout. And, and like, I think that Atticus because he's a product of his time as well, right? And so there's probably certain things that it's really hard to scrub out of a person, even if like in their mind, they see somebody as just as good as them. But he's still like one of the things that he says, to your point, he's like, it's so much worse for a white man to cheat a black man because he's taking advantage of the black man's ignorance. Now, on one level, you could look at that and say, well, the black people were maybe not able to have as much access to education and schooling as a lot of the white people. So maybe there was some like lack of education that way. So maybe that's what he was trying, trying to say, but yeah. it kind of comes across as him saying they're not as smart. We also have to remember like this is the South. Pretty rough, man. You know, in this time period that these people are super progressive. Yeah. To have as many people as they do on the side of Tom Robinson and to, to try to give him as good of a shot as possible. That was a big thing, especially yeah. for a small town. Like, because I feel like small towns are often like the furthest behind. Yeah. Maybe that's not fair, but it kind of seems that way. So <laughs> they don't get out as much. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I've never lived in a really small town, so I don't know, but I don't know. That's interesting. Interesting. Um, observation the next chapter chapter 24 so it's almost september jem had like found out that dill doesn't know how to swim and he's <laughs> like we have i don't know it was like two weeks we got two weeks left and i'm teaching you how to swim and he's like we're gonna swim naked so scout can't come cracks <laughs> me up anyways so they're out swimming Alexandra is having her missionary circle at their house. And I love how that's described as she's fighting the good fight, whatever that is. It's like a made up fight, you know, like I know Seriously. I probably won't cover it, but it's like, we got to fix these people that live. I was going to look that up. Did you look up what the Maruna people? I are? did. And it just referred to this book. Oh, really? So we, yeah, don't... it said, 
I also looked up what Charlottes were, which I will tell you in a second, because I thought that was really interesting. M-U-M-R-U. Okay. It's just like when you st start typing, it says Marunas to kill a mockingbird. It just says they're a tribe of people that the missionary circle is trying to civilize and Christianize under the leadership of a Methodist minister named Jay Grimes Everett, which we hear his name several, several times. Yeah. It just says it's not directly stated where they live, but they're an African-American tribe. So- well, I just always think it's interesting we're learning about the South and just there's just the handful of states over there and like Appalachia, Appalachia, how do you say it? That area. Well, I mean, that's a huge area, but sort of the Southern part that there are like these groups and these sort of tribes and they can be white, they can be black, they can be French, they can be whatever. They could be black, they could be white, they could be blue the blue people yes you know but there are all these sort of like subcultures yeah, throughout there right. so that actually doesn't surprise me at all that yeah people these ladies are gonna fix them <laughs> but i love that the ladies are they're complimenting calpurnia's charlotte's well and they're first they think they are alexandra's but she's like no Calpurnia made them. Mm -hmm. What they are is a type of bread pudding and they also might call it an icebox cake which I thought was, that's another oh. name for it, but it's like a custard. And then around the outside, it's lined with these cookies or biscuits that are like upright, like lady fingers. Oh, okay. Like cool. around the outside. So wow. I thought Sounds that was very fun. rich. Yeah. And she made a ton of these little Charlottes. Anyways, I just, this is funny. She says, why, Alexandra, I never saw such Charlotte. Just lovely. I never can get my crust like this. Never can. Who'd have thought the little dewberry tarts? Calpurnia? Who'd have thought? Like, they just can't. They're shocked that she can produce these. Anyways, yeah. that was funny. So Scout is helping Calpurnia serve the ladies. And then Alexandra's like, you need to come out and stay as soon as we start. I can't remember what part they were doing. So she wants her to to interact with the ladies because she wants to teach her how to be a lady. Like you said, as we're reading this, the writing is incredible. Ladies in bunches always filled me with vague apprehension and a firm desire to be elsewhere. But this feeling was what Alexandra called being spoiled. She doesn't like being in this group of women. And she's yeah. like, it just made me, made me want to be somewhere else. Okay, so she's out there socializing with all the women. Miss Maudie says to her, boy, you're, you're dressed up, Miss Jean Louise. And she says, where are your britches today? <laughs> I love that she says, under my dress. <laughs> and she says, I hadn't meant to be funny, but the ladies laughed. My cheeks grew hot as I realized my mistake, but Miss Maudie looked gravely down at me. She never laughed at me unless I meant to be funny. Such a sweet lady, right? Yes. So good. So good. Go it made me think like, okay, do I laugh at, at things little kids say even when they don't mean to be funny? I do. And we get in trouble all the time from Presley. She does not like it when we laugh at what she says. And it's hard because it's so dang cute. And I know it's so cute. And you're not like laughing at them. You're just like, oh my gosh, you're so cute. But they, I think that they take it as that. We're laughing at them. Yes. I need to like try not to do that. But oh, she's so stinking cute. The other day she goes, her birthday is February 17th. And she said, I can't wait till the 17th. And I just started <laughs> laughing because I was like, most kids would say, I can't wait till my birthday. Silly. <laughs> but that was another time she got mad at me for laughing. Or she'll tell me, don't tell dad. Don't call dad. Because I'll immediately pick up the phone and tell him. Like, oh, honey, she said. He's like, oh, <laughs> She's like, him. don't do that one. 
Yeah. Then Miss Stephanie Crawford asks, what you're going to be when you grow up? Jean Louise, a lawyer? And she says, well, I hadn't thought about it. And she's like, well, shoot, I thought you wanted to be a lawyer. You've always already commenced going to court as if that could be the only reason she went. Yeah. And then the ladies laugh at her again. And then Miss Stephanie says again, don't you want to grow up to be a lawyer? And she's like, no, just a lady. And Miss Stephanie says, well, you won't get very far until you start wearing dresses more often. I just love Miss Maudie. I think this is where she just kind of touches her. Yeah. I, I think she like holds her, puts her hand on her or something. Yeah. I just, what a sweet lady. Anyways, I just love her. Scout then tries to make a conversation with Mrs. Merriweather, who is going off about that tribe, the moon rock, however you say that, Runas. And Scout really isn't following what she's saying. <laughs> it's really confused. She's kind of sort of like zoned out. Yes. And Mrs. Merriweather says to her, you're a fortunate girl. You live in a Christian home with Christian folks in a Christian town. Out there in Jay Grimes Everett's land, there's nothing but sin and squalor. I always say forgive and forget, forgive and forget. Thing that church ought to do is help her lead a Christian life for those children from here on out. Some of the men ought to go out there and tell her preacher to encourage her. So then she interrupts because she's not following it, right? Scout interrupts her and says, excuse me, are you all talking about Mayla Yule? And she's says, no, she was talking about Tom Robinson's wife. Then they discuss, this part made me sick. They discuss how irritating it was that their cooks and field hands were sulking the day after the trial. And this actually like really reminded me of The Help. I know you read that book. It was very good. And this is where they do not think of Black people as human. They're not allowed to have feelings. They're not allowed to, they're not allowed any human decency at all that is just crazy okay so i think it's mrs merriweather that is still talking and she says you know what i said to my sophie gertrude and sophie must be one of like our cook or something she says sophie you simply are not being a christian today jesus christ never went around grumbling and complaining and you know it did her good she took her eyes off that floor and said no this Ms. Merriweather, Jesus never went around grumbling. I tell you, Gertrude, you never ought to let an opportunity go by to witness for the Lord. They think they're doing something righteous here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're grumbling and you're not like Jesus. Well, okay, Miss Merriweather, who's being like Jesus right now? It's not you. Right. I don't know. The ignorance. That's what I want to say, too. Like, we're talking about, they were talking about the Black people being ignorant. These women are so ignorant and so clueless. Mrs. Merriweather at one point is taking a breath and that's when Mrs. Farrow cuts in. She says, kind of, it says that she has this like, oh, how did they describe it? Like before everything she says, there's three S's. Yeah. She makes this weird, yeah, there's grace. I, I don't yeah. know like what that would actually sound like. I know. So anyways, okay. So she says, looks like we're fighting a losing battle. Doesn't matter to them one bit. We can educate them till we're blue in the face. We can try till we drop to make Christians out of them, but there's no lady safe in her bed these nights. So Mrs. Merriweather says, I tell you, there are some good but misguided people in this town. Good but misguided. Folks in this town who think they're doing right, I mean. Now far be it from me to say who, but some of them in this town thought they were doing the right thing a while back. But all they did was stir them up. That's all they did. Might have looked like the right thing to do at the time. And then she said, I tell you, if my Sophie'd kept it up another day, I'd have let her go. 
It's never entered that wool of hers that the only reason I keep her is because the depression's on and she needs her dollar and a quarter every week she can get it. This is what I wrote. Oh, brother. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then here's my question. Miss Maudie says she gets mad and she says his food doesn't stick going down, does it? Can you explain that to me? Okay. So I had to research this just a little bit because I was like, what? Huh? I think that it would have made more sense to us if it had been said earlier on. But right after Mrs. Merriweather is talking about Sophie, we're like, wait, what? Everybody knows that when she says folks in this town who think they're doing right, but they're misguided and all they did was stir things up. Up. she's referring to Atticus defending Tom Robinson, right? Mm -hmm. So she's totally criticizing him. Everybody knows she's talking about Atticus. And so Miss Maudie says, his food doesn't stick going down, does it? So basically she's like, you are in Atticus's house eating his food, sitting on his chairs, and you're criticizing him in front of his sister and in his house while eating his food. So when she says his food, she's like Atticus's food that you're eating. Doesn't stick oh. going down, does it? She's referring to her eat. Okay. Okay. I get it. Yeah. I know. It took it took a minute, but I, yeah. I don't know how you figured, like what you read to figure that out, but I read it several times and I was like, I'm so confused. Like, I get it's a dig. Yeah. Like, I don't understand who she's talking about or. Yeah, it's like. So are you choking on his food? Like, is it, do you have more bad things you want to say? It shuts her right up. Yeah. So Scout doesn't understand what's going on, but Alexandra, she can tell that Alexandra is grateful for Miss Maudie shutting her up, mm -hmm. so, even though she doesn't understand it. So she says she gave Miss Maudie a look of pure gratitude. She said that they hadn't ever been especially close, but she could tell that her aunt was silently thanking her for something. Scout says that she always felt more comfortable with men. That was kind of interesting. She says, ladies seem to live in faint horror of men, seemed unwilling to approve wholeheartedly of them, but I liked them. There was something about them, no matter how much they cussed and drank and gambled and chewed, no matter how undelectable they were, there was something about them I instinctively liked. They weren't. And then somebody comes in with the word hypocrites. That was, to me, that is very uh, brilliant writing. Yeah. At least Mrs. Perkins goes on to say, at least there's not hypocrites in Maycomb. But he's just like, not like those people up north that say one thing and do something else. We say it out loud. We tell you what we think. And then we treat yeah. them badly. Yeah. But yeah. Then somebody mentions that Tom Robinson isn't doing well and he'd given up hope. And the Atticus hadn't given him false hope. Because he knew, kind of knew what the outcome was going to be. That's when Atticus comes home. He calls Alexandra and Cal to the kitchen. He says he needs Calpurnia to go see Helen Robinson to tell her that Tom is dead. This shocked me. I was like, <gasps> oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> it, it did me too because I guess it's been long enough since I read it that I forgot that this... That, yeah. I remember that he is, like tried to escape. But I guess in my head, I thought that he had actually escaped. So well, basically, he had tried to escape. He just decided to run and he climbed, tried to jump over a fence and they shot at him. They first they shot in the air and then they they shot him like it's like 17 times or something. But and they said he was running so fast. 
that if he had had two able arms, he would have made it over the fence. Mm -hmm. But he probably, I mean, I think they they refer to like he chose, he knew what was going to happen when he tried to run. So I, I mean, they, truthfully, he maybe saw the electric chair in his future. Yeah. If I was him, I might choose the same thing. Yeah. It's awful because after the trial, it's like um, that was like the best defense ever. And I'm not getting out of this alive. He doesn't trust that the the appeals and stuff are going to do anything. Yeah. So uh, one thing I do like is Alexandra. You know, we love her. Or we don't love her. We hate her. But I mean, she is on Atticus's side. Mm-hmm. And she says they're perfectly willing to let him do what they're afraid to do themselves. This is where I was started to get the like, okay, there's a lot of people here that agree with him but are silent. Mm-hmm. It might lose him a nickel. They're perfectly willing to let him wreck his health doing what they're afraid to do. And then later it says the handful of people in this town who say that fair play is not marked white only. The handful of people who say a fair trial is for everyone, not just us. So there are people there that believe that. Yeah. So they leave. The women go back into the dining room and they act as if nothing has happened. They don't say a word. They just excuse Calpurnia and say, and then they start serving the the women. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, and I do like this at the very end when Gout says, if Auntie could be a lady at a time like this, so could I. And Alexandra is a very complex character, for sure. She has a lot of annoying points. And she has some good points, too, you know? Yeah. Like this, where she, this really shook them up, obviously. It was a horrible thing that they just learned. But it was like, Kate. Okay, we're still going to act like ladies. We're not going to like melt down. We're going to go out and put on a good front and yeah, just carry on. And that, that takes a lot of fortitude and it's a good example. So when I was reading that chapter, I was like, uh, this, everything in here is important and yeah, yeah. so much good stuff that comes straight from the book. <laughs> yeah. And in about a minute and a half, it's going to be your turn again because yes. it's <laughs> pretty short and I can summarize it very quickly. So Basically, Atticus Calpurnia left to go tell Helen Robinson, and then we don't know anything more about it because this is all from Scout's point of view. So if she's not there, we don't know what happened unless somebody tells her. And so that night she hears about what happened from Jem because Jem and Dill had been out swimming and Atticus drove by on his way out to to visit Helen Robinson. He's like, hey, you guys are probably going to need to get a ride home because I'm going to be a while. And then he's like, you know what? Just jump in the car, um, but you're going to need to stay in the car. So Jem and Dill get in the car with Atticus and they go out to where the Robinsons live. And they live in sort of like a neighborhood with a bunch of other families. And all the kids are playing out in the yard. Atticus asks little Sam, Robinson to go and get his mother and he does and from the car Jem and Dill don't hear anything else they just see Helen Robinson just crumble to the ground and she's just completely overcome and they see Atticus and Calpurnia help her into the house and a little while later Atticus leaves and obviously he's left Calpurnia there with Helen and um, they drive home they drive past the Yules who like yell some things at them but they couldn't hear what they said one a couple of things there's like an editorial in the the newspaper 
something they understand from it is that Atticus, right from here, it says Atticus had used every tool available to free men to save Tom Robinson. But in the secret courts of men's hearts, Atticus had no case. Tom was a dead man the minute Mayella Yule opened her mouth and screamed. But the last part of this, it just talks about how Mr. Yule had said to somebody that the fact that Tom Robinson was dead, that, well, that was one down and about two more to go. So he's continued, he's carried on with this threat, you know, against the people who he felt have wronged him. So that's a little scary. It does say here that he likened, so this is Mr. B.B. Underwood that's writing, right? Yeah, that yeah. he likened Tom's death to the senseless slaughter of songbirds by hunters and children. Yeah, so, absolutely. Which which ties into the idea of killing a mockingbird. Yep. Somebody who's completely innocent. Okay, so chapter 26. Now Scout is in the third grade and Jim is in high school. And he's gone out for football, but he's too skinny. And so he's basically the water boy. He's the water boy. He just carries the buckets of water. Which is probably harder than playing football, but Scout is back to being obsessed with Boo Radley, but now she's older, so she's not afraid of him. She's just obsessed with him, trying to understand what's going on with him, why he never comes out. So Atticus lets her know that he is aware of her desire to see Boo. She says, this was the first he had let us know he knew a lot more about something than we thought he knew. And it happened years ago. No, only last summer. No, summer before last. When time was playing tricks on me, I must remember to ask Jim. I just so Scout gives this quick description of their situation, like after the trial and what's going on. She says the adults in Makem never discussed the case with Jim and her. Seemed that they discussed it with their children, and their attitude must have been that neither of us could help having Atticus for a parent. So their children need to be nice to the them, even though Atticus is their father. The children would never have thought that up for themselves. Don't you love that when you hear like kids say something, you're like, okay, well, that obviously came from your parents because. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you would never have come up with that on your own. So she said, um, Gemini would have uh, several swift, satisfying fist fights apiece and ended the matter for good. As it was, we were compelled to hold our heads high and be respectively a gentleman and a lady. There was one odd thing, though. That I never understood. In spite of Atticus's shortcomings as a parent, people were content to re-elect him to the state legislature that year, as usual, without opposition. Well, that was really interesting. So are they they actually support him, but they talk about him out loud? Mm -hmm. They're like, no, there's something wrong. He shouldn't have done that. But then deep down, maybe they agree with him. Anyway, she says, I came to the conclusion that people were just peculiar. I withdrew from them and never thought about them until I was forced to. So in the school assignments, they are supposed to find these articles with current events in them and like basically just recap them for the class. And not many children knew what a current event was. And then also some of the kids don't have access to newspapers. And so mm -hmm. I love that little Chuck Little he like comes up with this thing and the teacher's like, that's not a current event. That's an advertisement. That was so funny. <laughs> I remember being a kid and being expected to like do something out of a newspaper and be like super confused about it. Like newspapers are difficult for children. They are. So one of the kids presents this article about Hitler and they talk about democracy and a dictatorship. And Miss Gates just says that she thinks this situation is 
horrible. She says this, over here, we don't believe in persecuting anybody. Persecution comes from people who are prejudiced. Prejudice, she announces carefully. And then she's like, there are no better people in the world than the Jews. And why Hitler doesn't think so is a mystery to me. I thought that was interesting. Like, okay, but you just think that they're better than everybody. And that's why they shouldn't be persecuted over there. But here, it, it really doesn't translate here. <laughs> We're doing the same thing. So Scout remembers that she had asked Atticus about Hitler. And he just said that he thinks he's a maniac. So she starts to ask Atticus about it, but she doesn't really know how to say it, like how to put it into words. And so she goes to Jim. She tells Jim about the situation at school and the conversation. And then she tells him about overhearing Miss Gates after the trial. And this is what she says. Well, coming out of the courthouse that night, Miss Gates was... She was going down the steps in front of us. You must have not seen her. She was talking with Miss Stephanie Crawford. I heard her say, it's time somebody taught them a lesson. They were get getting way above themselves. And the next thing they think they can do is marry us. Jem, how can you hate Hitler so bad and turn around and be ugly about folks right home? So she's like, how can you say this about Hitler? And then you turn around and you're just being the same way to the people here. Anyways, I love Scout. Yes. Jim then gets mad and he says he never wants her to bring the trial up again. And so then she goes back to Atticus, who had overheard their conversation. And it says Atticus said that Jim was trying hard to forget something. But what he was really doing was storing it away for a while until enough time passed. Then he would be able to think about it and sort things out. When he was able to think about it, Jim would be himself again. Brilliant. Yeah, it really is. I mean... Jim was pretty traumatized by what he saw at the trial. It was very disturbing to him. And then I think for Scout to share that with him, and it just brought it back so vividly, just the absolute hypocrisy, the prejudice, the racism that they were experiencing right there. And I think that he became very disenchanted because he says earlier, I thought the people in Maycomb County were like the best in the world. And it's like, Actually, no. So that's very, that, I'm sure that's very difficult for a little boy to come to grips with. Yeah, Atticus's so. views are just so spot on. Yeah, and I think that that is why Jem and Scout are the way they are. He gives examples and he lives this way all the time, putting himself in other people's shoes. That is where empathy comes from, really. And it's where this attitude of not being better than anybody because if we put ourselves in somebody else's shoes that that means that we have to recognize that we're equal with them or they are equal to us right at least i think so so he's made this a practice in his life he's taught this to his children and so this is how scout is being raised and so she can see through this hypocrisy that's she can't name it but she's like uh, this is not right. They say Hitler is so bad because he's doing this to the Jews, but Jews and often are so much better at this kind of stuff than we are. Yeah. Yeah. They're able to often take the long range view because they haven't been so inundated with all the bull crap. Chapter 27, she talks about how some things happened to three different people. The first one was that Bob Ewell got a job, but he was the only man that she'd ever heard of who was fired from the WPA for laziness. So the WPA was one of the programs put into place during the Great Depression. 
he got fired because he was lazy. And I think that he thought that his time in court was sort of his, would sort of propel him to some sort of fame or something, yeah. but he found that he was, he was forgotten and he was super lazy and he wanted to blame Atticus and Atticus is like, okay, well, he can come talk to me if he's got a problem, but of course he wasn't going to. So that was the first thing that happened was Bob Ewell got a job and then got fired from the job within just a couple of days. And then the second thing that happened was Judge Taylor, he was at his home on a Sunday evening where everybody else was at church and he heard this sound, went out to his porch and someone had been trying to cut through the screen of his door. They were trying to break into his house and he saw sort of part of a person, but he couldn't, it wasn't enough to recognize who the person was. The third thing that happened is that Mr. Link Dees, who had employed uh, Tom Robinson, he's the one who like stood up in court and was like, he is so good. I don't have anything negative to say. He like worked so hard for me and everything. Well, he employs Helen now. He gives her a job so that he she can have a way to take care of her children. She doesn't want to walk by the Ewell's house on her way to work. And so she goes the long way around. He's like, that becomes obvious to him. So he goes and he talks to the Ewells and he says, you do not give her a second of trouble or basically I'll make sure you get thrown into jail. One day she walks past the Ewell's house and Bob Ewell like follows her to work all the way to Mr. Linkty's house and or store. And he like says things to her and stuff. Obviously she's very disturbed and traumatized by this. And so Linkty's is like, you absolutely leave her alone or I'll make sure you get locked up. And Helen had no trouble after that. Something interesting that happens is Aunt Alexandra, she's very concerned about Bob Yule. She's like, he seems to have a grudge against everybody. And she's like, he was able to have his time in court. Why should he be so angry at it? And basically like they won. They got Tom Robinson put in jail. Tom Robinson even got killed. So why did he have a grudge against everybody? And Atticus, again takes a moment to stand in his shoes. That doesn't mean that he agrees with him. It doesn't mean that he thinks that he's a good person at all. But he takes a moment to try to see where he's coming from. He says, I think I understand. It might be because he knows in his heart that very few people in Maycomb really believed his and Mayella's yarns. He thought he'd be a hero, but all he got for his pain was, was okay, we'll convict this Negro, but get back to your dump. He's had his fling with about everybody now, so he ought to be satisfied. He'll settle down when the weather changes. The outcome of the court case was not actually exactly what he wanted. In the end, he still was treated the exact same because he was a very trashy, awful person. He did not change. And what we know is that the person on the porch of Judge Taylor was Bob Yule. He was trying to break into his house because he thought that he was gone. So... So it's Halloween and there's like this whole thing about why they're doing a big event at the school for Halloween. I'm not going to go into that, but they're doing this big event at the school for Halloween. A lot of it is like telling the history of Maycomb County. And as part of it, a bunch of the kids are dressing up and uh, Scout is supposed to dress up like a ham. And so Mrs. Crenshaw like made this amazing costume for our complete with like chicken wire and like cloth. And she made it look like a ham hawk, and Scout is going to be in his pageant. It says, Atticus said as tactfully as he could that he just didn't think he could stand a pageant tonight. And Aunt Alexandra had been helping to decorate for it for the 
all day. And so she said that she was super tired. Instead, Scout like performs her part for her father and Aunt Alexandra. And then she goes and performs for Calpurnia. And so she's like, it's fine. So if they're not there, I already was able to perform for them. And so then Jem takes her to the pageant and she says, thus began our longest journey together. Yeah, here we go. I was like, when I read that line, I'm like, uh-oh, this is it. <laughs> yeah. And I don't even know what's going to happen, but I, yeah, I feel so like accomplished now that I know what happens in this book. Yeah. So it's, it's still Halloween night and Jem is walking Scout to her performance at the high school and it's so dark that night, which is really interesting. I mean, I can't even imagine walking in the darkness that they are talking about here. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. So they have to walk super carefully because they can't see anything. But suddenly someone jumps out at them and it ends up being Cecil Jacobs. So I think he, yeah, he must be a scout's classmate. And he'd really scared them. And they like admitted it. They're like, yeah, you really scared us. So we got to give it to you. And Jem is super happy because now he's like, okay, now when we get to the high school, the scout can go off with Cecil and I'll I'll be able to go do what I want to do. So they go to the high school and they have, it's like a carnival type thing for the kids. They have a house of horrors. They have a seventh grade dark room. I loved this because my mom did this for us once when we were little kids. They like touch peeled grapes in a saucer yeah. and felt the innards <laughs> like of like cold spaghetti. Yeah, like some like, spaghetti, yeah. My mom totally did that for us. And then they talk about bobbing for apples like we talked about in our last book. And they're like, it's not really sanitary. So apparently they knew that then too. Yeah. So it's time to go backstage. So they're get are all ready for the pageant. And Mrs. Merriweather goes on and on and on talking. About 30 minutes. She just keeps talking about Maycomb's history. And Scout figures out how to like sit in her costume and she falls asleep. <laughs> And then she misses her cue. You know, everybody seems to have liked the pageant, even though Miss is it Mrs. Merriweather that yells at Scout for having ruined it. And Jem's kind of like, well, you kind of just missed your cue. You just came out a little late. It was fine. Like, don't worry about it. He tries to make her feel better, but she's so embarrassed that she wants to leave her costume on and wait for everybody to kind of clear out, which huge mistake. But uh, yeah. someone even offers them a ride and they're like, no, it's just not very far of a walk. But I like this. Be careful of Haints, the voice somebody says. Better still tell the Haints to be careful of Scout. They know her. They know her. So they leave for home. Jem is holding Scout's hawk to steady her because she's walking <laughs> in this awkward costume. And it's still super, super dark. Jem thinks he hears something. And whenever they're moving, he hears it. But then when they stop, it stops. I think he's getting a little bit worried. Jem suggests that maybe it's Cecil, but they know that if it had been Cecil, he would have shown himself by now. Jem can see a scout because of this special paint that is on her costume that kind of glows in the dark. And so he's able to see her. Maybe you should take your costume off. Now, do you think it's so other people can't see them or maybe so they can run if they have to? I don't know. I think it's a combination. Yeah. Honestly, because she cannot move well at all. So I don't think he wants anybody to see them. 
Yeah, they're worried. She's like, well, I'm not wearing much under this. And he's like, well, I have your dress. And she's like, I can't put that on the dark. It's just too dark. And then she asks him if he's afraid. And he's like, no, I think we're getting close. You know, we're almost to the tree now. Remember, it's like they're walking. They hear it. They stop. It stops. She says, our company shuffled and dragged his feet as if wearing heavy shoes. Whoever it was wore thick cotton pants. What I thought were trees rustling was the soft swish of cotton on cotton. Weak, weak with every step. So the person that's following them starts running. And then that's when Jem screams, run, run, run. So she's got this little costume problem. So she's yelling for Jem to help her. The costume is causing tons of trouble. Jem is trying to help her. And then she says, we were nearly to the road when I felt Jem's hand leave me. Felt him jerk backwards to the ground. More scuffling. And there was a dull crunching sound. And then Jem screams. She runs towards Jem, but she ends up, I don't, she's not like on, she just kind of runs into a guy. Is he standing? Yeah. Yeah. She runs into his belly. And he tries to grab her, right? He's trying to catch her. He does grab her. Yeah. Yeah. He He squeezes her. Stomach was soft, but his arms were like steel. And he slowly squeezed the breath out of me. I couldn't move. Suddenly, he was jerked backwards and flung on the ground, almost carrying me with him. She thinks it's Jem. Anyways, but then once she lands on him, she can tell that, like, it's a man, not Jem. She thinks a man is leaning against the tree. She calls for Jem. There's no answer. And then she realizes that there's, like, four people there. Yeah. So there's this guy, Jem, her, and one other person. She's, like, frantically looking for Jem in the dark. She's trying to reach for him. She says, this is when she falls. She says, my toes touched trousers, a belt buckle, buttons, something I could not identify, a collar and a face. A prickly stubble on the face told me it was not Jem's. And she smelled whiskey. She goes toward where she thinks the road is. She gets to the street and realizes that the man, that there's a man that's carrying Jem and Jem's arm is like dangling in this Mm -hmm. awkward angle. So they get to the door. The man kind of comes into the house at Aunt Alexandra is, uh, meets them at the door she i think yeah she's the one that yells call dr reynolds and then she sees scout scout comes in she tells her aunt that she's all right they call the doctor and then atticus comes out and he calls the sheriff and he says you know somebody's been after my kids Jem is hurt i can't leave him here you've got to go figure you know got to go find out what's going on here So again, Scout says she's fine and she finally gets out of her costume and she is messed up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like there's like scratch. I get chicken wire. I know. Good grief. Like I can't even imagine being in a scuffle or, you know, with chicken wire in your costume. But anyways, so she just keeps asking if Jem is dead. Is Jem dead? He must look dead to her. He's totally unconscious. His arm is not the right direction. This is really sweet that Alexandra at that point brings her clothes to put on and he, she brings her overalls. Yeah. <laughs> like She's like, I'm not taking this one opportunity to be like, you're <laughs> going to be a lady. So Dr. Reynolds gets there. They find out that Jem has a bump on his head and that his arm is broken pretty bad. The sheriff arrives and the doctor had put Jem out when he'd started to wake up. And, bas- and I think they said later that he was like, trying to kick him and so he gives him something to put him out again the man that had brought them home is also there he's standing in the room with jem just kind of against the wall and scout says he was some countryman i did not know 
basically the sheriff, he comes back, says that he'd found Scout's dress and he'd found pieces of her costume all over. And then he says, Bob Ewell's lying on the ground under that tree down yonder with a kitchen knife stuck up under his ribs. He's dead, Mr. Finch. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Okay. So then jumping into chapter 29, Aunt Alexandra is obviously out of sorts, but Mr. Tate wants everybody to sit down and he wants to get the whole story from Scout, who was there. And Alexandra actually does leave the room because she's like, I don't think you guys need me. And it feels really crowded. And I think she's very just her feathers are very ruffled by it. And also she's feeling guilty because she's like, if I had gone with the kids, this wouldn't have happened. And I'm sure Atticus is feeling that way as well. But something Mr. Tate said, I thought that was it was really good. He said, don't you fret yourself about anything. Why, if we followed our feelings all the time, we'd be like cats chasing their tails. So then he wants to get the whole story from Scout. And so she she just rehashes it and basically tells everything like what you just said. Uh, Sheriff Tate does interrupt to be like, Atticus, did you hear the kids yelling for, you know, at their friend? And Atticus is like, I had the radio on. Alexander had a radio. Most people are listening to the radios at night, so they wouldn't have heard the kids. And then she talks about her costume. She's like, Jem could see me because of the shiny paint on my costume. Sheriff Tate wants a little more description of that. And so Atticus tells Sheriff Tate about it, and then he grabs the costume, and it says it was crushed to a pulp. So Mr. Tate looks at it, Sheriff Tate looks at it, and he's like, holy moly. And he says, this thing probably saved her life. He said, he pointed with a long forefinger, a shiny clean line stood out on the dull wire. Bob Ewell meant business. And I, I think maybe it was like, it was sliced. Yep. Yeah. So, and Atticus is like, he was out of his mind. Sheriff Tate is like, no, he was dead drunk. Like he got himself drunk enough to the point that he could harm children. Of course, what we know is he he did do that to his own kids, but to be so brash and, and crazy enough to go after somebody else's kids. And he hurts his kids. He doesn't kill his kids. Yeah. He was getting himself so drunk to where he could be brave enough to kill Atticus's children. And Atticus is like, I can't even conceive of a man who'd do that. Mr. Tate says, Mr. Finch, there's just some kind of men you have to shoot before you can say Heidi to him. Even then, they ain't worth the bullet it takes to shoot him. You all is one of them. So Scout continues her story. She tells everything that happened and how Mr. Ewell was like trying to squeeze the life out of her, it seemed like. And then she talks about how somebody was staggering around and panting and coughing fit to die. I thought it was Jem at first, but it didn't sound like him. So looking for Jem on the ground, I thought Atticus had come to help us and had got wore out. They say, who was it? Why, there he is, Mr. Tate. He can tell you his name. So that person that she thought was a country person she didn't recognize still standing in the room. And then she really takes a close look at him and she knows who it is. And at the very end of this, the chapter, she says, hey, boo. Because she takes him all in. She's like, there's hands that have never seen the sun, or at least not for a long time. His kind of worn clothes and his facial skin that's very, very pale. His hair that's very wispy because he's just been inside for so long. All these things 
and does not look healthy. So she puts it all together and realizes it was Boo Radley who saved them. I love the beginning of this chapter, how Atticus, in this situation, he corrects Scout. He calls <laughs> Arthur Boo. He's like, yeah. and she says, if Atticus could blandly introduce me to Boo Radley at a time like this, well, that was Atticus. So yeah, she's like, he's like, no, this is Arthur Radley. Okay, so Dr. Reynolds moves in at that point to examine Jim. He tells, because she just keeps asking and asking and asking if he's dead. And she's like, well, I knew he was alive when he tried to kick me. So rest assured, he's alive. At that point, Atticus invites everybody to go out to the porch. And I love how Scout treats Boo or Arthur Radley like a celebrity. She's yeah. kind of like, oh, I can't believe I'm in his presence. I can't believe we're here. <laughs> like. Yeah, absolutely. He's in front of me. Like, I just reminded me of how um, how I would be if I was a celebrity. Like, she's like, I've wanted to see him for so long, and here he is. Okay, so basically, throughout this chapter, Atticus is like, "Hey, I know we have a problem here. My kid did something," and Sheriff Tate is like, "No, we don't have a problem. It's fine." Like, I went and saw what happened, and he's like, "You have to go. You, you know, you would have to see it." He eventually he tells him that he fell on his own knife and i mean it's just atticus just keeps on he's like no yeah. i don't want any special treatment like i don't want this to haunt him down the road when he is older and they're like hey remember when that dad got that kid off you know yeah basically that's this whole chapter is Hector's yeah like them going back and forth yes he's like no it says Mr. Tate added that Atticus wasn't going to stand there and maintain that any boy Jem's size with a busted arm had fight enough left in him to tackle and kill a grown man in the pitch dark. He's like, Atticus, you're being ridiculous here. Yeah. Yeah. He was not thinking clearly at all. Another part that I highlighted was he says there's a black boy dead for no reason. And the man responsible for it's dead. Let the dead bury the dead. This time, Mr. Finch, let the mm -hmm. dead bury the dead. I'm that was really quick, but like basically that's the whole chapter is and and that's the other thing. Like he's not 13, but yet I don't think he could have wrestled the knife away from Bob and killed him. No, there is no possible oh. and his arm was already broke. His arm was broken. Yeah. There's no way. And so what it all comes down to is that Mr. Tate is actually trying to protect Boo Radley because he knows that Boo Radley is the one who right. killed him. Because it was like, it was self-defense. I mean, yeah. it was, he was defending the children. The whole reason he's like, let the dead bury the dead. Basically, let's let this just yeah, go away. Because when the people of the town find out about it, they're going to try to bring, you know, treat Boo Radley kind of like a celebrity and like bring him pies and and all this attention that he's never had and he's never wanted, obviously. And that's not fair to him. That's why we're just going to kind of let it go away. Let so. this problem take care of itself. And this is when it all ties together, too, because Scout says it'd sort of be like shooting a mockingbird, wouldn't it? Bothering this person who had only ever done good things. And there was no reason for it. One last thing, though, from the last chapter is that as Atticus is walking in the house, he says... Thank you for my children, Arthur. She's still having, she's kind of starry-eyed. She's like, I can't believe he's been sitting by me all this time. Boo, Bradley. <laughs> so funny. She's like, if, if you want to, you can come say goodnight to Jem. And he did. And she's like, you can pet him, Mr. Arthur. He wouldn't let you if he was awake, but he's asleep. So you can pet him if you want to. So he kind of like strokes his head. And 
she's like, I was beginning to learn his body English. It's like she has this understand understanding of him. He quietly asks her to take him home. So she does. She's like, bend your arm down here. So she puts her little hand in the crook of his arm and she has him lead her down the sidewalk to their house because she's like, if anybody looked out and saw us, they'd be like, oh, look, he's just a gentleman, you know? So she says goodbye to him. He goes in the house and she says, I never saw him again. And I love this quote. Neighbors bring food with death and flowers with sickness and little things in between. Boo was our neighbor. He gave us two soap dolls, a broken watch and chain, a pair of good luck pennies and our lives. But neighbors give in return. We never put back into the tree what we took out of it. We had given him nothing. And it made me sad. So I think that really gave her pause and made her think about a lot of things. It's like she really learned in that moment what it is to put herself in somebody else's shoes because she stands there on, on the rally porch and she sees the past two years or three years from Boo's point of view. And she kind of recaps it. It's really sweet. It's very nostalgic as she talks about the summer and these two children. And she sees, you know, from Boo's point of view, all the things that she and Jem and Atticus did and as Boo would have seen them. And she says, Atticus was right. One time he said, you never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around in them. Just standing on the Radley porch was enough. She says, as I made my way home, I thought Jem and I would get grown, but there wasn't much else left for us to learn, except possibly algebra. So she goes into Atticus. He's reading a book. It happens to be The Grey Ghost. He reads to her as she goes to sleep. She kind of tells him the ending of the book. She says, they chased him and never could catch him because they didn't know what he looked like. And Atticus, when they finally saw him, why he hadn't done any of those things that he'd been accused of. Atticus, he was real nice, which kind of draws the whole thing together with Boo Radley. And he says, most people are scout when you finally see them. He turned out the light, went to Jim's room. He would be there all night and he would be there when Jim waked up in the morning. And that is the end of the book. We did it. And now I can watch the movie and I'm super excited. Yes. Do you have any books like it really quick? I have good ones. I have three good. Oh, good. Oh my gosh. I it's okay. share yours and I might think of some. Go okay. Ahead. So the first one is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, which yeah. we are going yeah. to do this year so basically huck finn follows or you follow huck finn as he runs away from home with an escaped slave so okay another one is kindred by octavia butler have you ever read that i have yes very good and it's funny because it's described as a modern day black woman modern day as in 1976 because that's when it was written time travels back to 1815 when her um ancestors are enslaved and such a good book Oh, anyways, I love that book. It's funny how when you read books, you're like definite memories stick out. Yes, for sure. And I can picture her arm in that book. <laughs> okay. And then the last one is Mudbound by Hillary Jordan. Oh my gosh, this book is good. Okay. It is set in Mississippi where my grandparents lived, like right where my grandparents lived. And some of my aunts and uncles were born there. So good. So it's set on a Mississippi farm in 1946. Tons of racism. Tons of really hard things to read. So like mm -hmm. if that's a trigger for you, this is not the book for you. But 
this book has one of the most awful characters I've ever read in a book ever. Oh, wow. Horrible guy. Anyways, it's about this woman who is like kind of, she's older and she's like, I'm never going to get married. And then this guy marries her. They have a couple of kids and then his sister's husband dies. And so they move to this place in Mississippi on a farm and they go to this house that they rented and found out it was a scam. And so they end up like living on the farm. And then there's just all this, all these situations with racism that happen with his brother and a guy from the town. Oh, such a good book. Mm. If wow. you, okay. if you can handle cool. it, I bought it for my dad. I was like, you have to read this book because he loves nice. Mississippi and, but it's really sad. That did actually help me think of a, of a few books. So first of all, we mentioned one while we were talking about the book. So The Help by Catherine Stockett. I believe that's the author. I feel like most people have heard of it. If not, definitely read it. I thought the movie was really well done, but I did read the book first and the movies are never quite as good as the books. The book was excellent. So it's set in the 1950s though, and it's the South and the help refers to these black women who are employed by all these wealthy white women who kind of do nothing. And and then this girl who's been off to college and kind of learns, this is not how things should be done. And she wants to tell the stories of all these, these women and how they're being treated and how unfair it is. Another one that came to mind, and you may go, okay, what's wrong with you, um, is the book Woman of Troublesome Creek. This woman is she would technically be white, but she is blue and it is the South and it's during the Great Depression. So it's like a similar time period. Um, so if a sign on a store says no colored people, it means no black people, no blue people, nobody other than just white people are allowed into the store. So it's kind of a different perspective, but I think it's really interesting in dealing with just the absolute just ignorance and prejudice. It's just bizarre and crazy. I thought it was a very good book. And then the last one is Uncle Tom's Cabin, which takes place right before the Civil War. And of course, that's by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Such an excellent book. Uh, she was very much an abolitionist. Her father was an abolitionist. And she wanted to get the word out. She wanted to paint the picture of how awful and evil slavery was. And so that's why she wrote this book. And um, it's an excellent book. I read it aloud to my kids a few years ago, and it's one that, you know, it's very complex and language of the mid-19th century, but so well done that they still followed along really well. And at the end, I was just like sobbing as I read the book. It was, it read the last chapter. It's very wonderful. Very good book. So really quickly, what are you reading? Okay. So I actually do have a book to share this week, even though it's been aside from my massive certified personal trainer manual. Oh my gosh. So this one came recommended from a, a guy that works at the gym where I work. He, he was sitting there reading the meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that is not something you often see like 20 year olds doing that are personal trainers at a gym. But True. so we started started talking about books and he's like, have you heard of the book of five rings? Because I was telling him about The Art of War by Sun Tzu and how much I love that book. So he's like, have you read the book of five rings by Miyamoto Musashi? 
it's like, no, I haven't even heard of it. So it's right on Hoopla. It's not super long. And they start off giving some history of this Miyamoto Musashi, who was this incredible samurai. And basically this book was written, he was just writing down like how to win all of your battles. <laughs> you didn't think that it would be this masterpiece. The Book of Five Rings has long been regarded as an invaluable treatise on the strategy of winning. Musashi's timeless advice on defeating an adversary, throwing an opponent off guard, creating confusion and other techniques for overpowering an assailant was addressed to the readers of earlier times on the battlefield and now serves the modern reader in the battle of life. So I'm really excited about it. I'm about 20% through. And like I said, it kind of starts with a, a, a history of him and um, then jumps into his actual words. So interesting. Yeah. Nicole? I took Audrey to the doctor the other day and I had my book and my pen and highlighter and stuff. And there was another guy there with a book and he had a pen in his hand. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you don't see that very you often. Are my people. Yes. <laughs> How often do you see like a young <laughs> man? Especially a personal trainer, but reading a book with a pen in his hand. <laughs> I know. Yeah, seriously, I love it. Right. What I read this week was The Book of Cold Cases by Simone St. James. Have you ever heard of her? Oh, I feel like I have. I don't think I've ever read anything by her, but I think that I have heard of her. Yeah, I, she's written other stuff, but I think, or maybe I'm thinking of another St. James. But anyways, this book was really good. And I have to say, I stopped listening to podcasts yeah and i am following books easier like oh, that's really interesting i think podcasts to me are like candy it's like when you know you, fair enough. Time, you can't have like a, a appetite for vegetables <laughs> and so i don't know if that's what it is but like maybe it's just practice like i've been listening to books and so anyways just so much easier to follow i'm really enjoying the books i'm reading because i'm following them better than i normally my mind isn't wandering as much as it usually does so this is the book of cold cases and it's 19 1977 in claire lake oregon which has got to be a made up place cuz i've never heard of it before mm. but so it's about a true crime blogger she runs into this lady who in 1977, as a 23-year-old woman, was like accused of murdering these two guys. And she's the lady killer. So mm -hmm. these men were randomly murdered with the same gun with these strange notes left behind. And this woman's name is Beth Greer. And she goes on trial and ends up getting off. But then it like goes back to 2017 and this lady is a blogger and she has this blog called The Book of Cold Cases. And so at night she just like, she's this divorced lady and she like hangs out on her little blog with other people. So she runs, this blogger runs into the lady who's the lady killer at a doctor's office that she works for and the lady agrees to do an interview with her. And so she goes to this like mansion, which is where the lady lives, this creepy mansion. And the lady like kind of just shows her like leaves clues for her around. And so she like figures out what happened and who actually killed the men. Because Beth, the lady knows it wasn't her, but the lady knows who did it. So good. That sounds really exciting. There's a little so bit of super book of cold cases. Yes. There's a little supernatural stuff in it too. So I don't okay. know that's something you don't like then. But it was interesting. I really sure good. wanted to know what was going to happen. So that's yeah. what I need right now. Something like that. I I, I really liked it. Next week, we're going to start Anne of Green Gables. Hey. And I made a schedule. Is that okay? 
That is wonderful. Okay, we're going to do chapters one through 10. Okay. And we're going to basically do 10 chapters. So we'll do like one through 10 and then the next one we'll do 11 through 20 until we get to the end. And there's like eight chapters left. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery, chapters one through 10. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share a podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.